Welcome to Between Two Chairs, Demystifying Commercial Real Estate, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and trends on the South Florida commercial real estate market with your hosts, Fernando Arencibia Jr. and Jennifer Woolman. In each episode, we dive into the world of commercial real estate and break down complex concepts to make them accessible for everyone. Whether you're a real estate professional, a curious investor, or just interested in the South Florida market in general, Between Two Chairs is the podcast for you. So pull up a chair and join us. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Between Two Chairs. My name is Fernando Arencibia, and as always with me is my incomparable co-host and partner, Jennifer Woolman, who I think kicks something off and we can no longer... Oh, there we are. <laughs> Hi, Jennifer. Say hello. Hi, hi, hi. Hello, everybody. Fernando's extra punchy today. You can tell we're getting into the last month of the year. It's December, only a couple more weeks to go. <laughs> we are almost there, almost there. Well, thank you, everybody. This is a um, an episode in, in which we thought we would break down something that comes out every year um, in the fourth quarter, and it is a list of top 10 issues that is put out by the counselors of real estate. So I thought Jennifer would be good for us to, since we are all about demystifying commercial real estate first, explain to people who are the counselors of real estate. Sure, so the counselors of real estate is a global organization of commercial property advisors from all aspects of the real estate industry, finance, government, academia, etc. It was established in, I believe, 1953, if I'm not mistaken. And it was basically to put together a group of top thought leaders to solve real estate related problems. Um, and issues facing they've done everything from how do you you know advising cities on how to redo a downtown area or building owners um, difficult properties etc so they're just thought leaders from all around the world you have to be invited to join it's pretty distinguished and to your point every year they put out this um, these predictions which are based on their surveys of thousands of real estate experts to gauge emerging issues. So this report came out at the beginning of October, um, the first week in October, but since it's the end of 2023 and we're going into 2024, I thought it would be good to bring up right towards the end of the year to get sure. us thinking and looking forward and being aware of some of the issues that they see and yeah. so that we can plan on how to potentially navigate them, yeah. the ones that we can affect anyway, or how to navigate our business given those. So once again, the counselors of real estate are not a group of therapists that are helping uh, brokers navigate through the market, the ups and downs of... Uh, of, of <laughs> no, no. I think that's a little market. bit what we do. No. But yeah, you're right. You're right. No, no, you're but the counselors right. of real estate are uh, thought leaders. 
What I like about this top 10 list is, uh, or top 10 issues list is that, uh, you know, there's over a thousand credential real estate advisors that pour over all of the issues that they're seeing in the marketplace and uh, those that are emerging and those that are current. And, you know, as opposed to being uh, so hyper-specific or hyper-local, they're, they're looking not over the course of the next 12 months or 24 months, they're looking 5, 10, 15 years down the line as well. So there's a lot of, you know, the way that the information is presented, which has to do with laying out a map of what are the issues that um, present themselves that may have the effect or both positive and negative on the marketplace over the next five or 10 years. And they, they do tend to be global issues, but this year a lot of the discussion focused, even though they're global issues, they narrowed in on the issues in the United States just because those trends are magnified, I think, in the United States just based on population size, et cetera. Yeah. So what we're gonna do is the way that they did it where they list the top 10, but we start at the bottom going from 10 to, to one Correct. and working our way backwards. So I love the titles that they came up with. Mm -hmm. The number 10 is London Bridges Falling Down and then A Fork in the Road Traversing Both Paths. and. It was funny because I read London Bridge. Of course, I think of my son living in London. I'm like, oh, they're going to talk about, you know, something going on in, in International. London internationally. Right. And uh, but no, unlike the title, this is not about London Bridge, but rather about America's bridges, roads and overall aging infrastructure. They talk about obviously aging infrastructure is an issue worldwide, but especially in the states, they addressed the 1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law and the $783 billion allocated within the Inflation Reduction Act. And what I thought was interesting was they said, or one of the questions that they posed, and I'm gonna do a direct quote, is that one opportunity ahead is to reimagine infrastructure the same way we are reimagining how we are delivering products and services to people in the future, which includes shifting from a model of mass distribution to more localized distribution. Yeah. So I thought that was super interesting. And then they also talked about shifting um, infrastructure related issues from being strictly a government responsibility to right. being like a public private partnership and i thought those again being thought leaders really makes you think you know do we spend all of this money in the mm -hmm. states or elsewhere just fixing deferred maintenance on right. infrastructure issues yeah. or do we also use some of that money to go towards new infrastructure Correct. to face new economies such as climate change and alternative energy sources yeah. etc and I thought I thought all those were very interesting. I find this is an, a very interesting conversation because I, I don't think that brokers outside of the commercial world really think about the value of in infrastructure. Yet everybody talks about location, location, location. But how important it is the infrastructure that it is surrounding that, that location to the value of the property. In industrial, we often speak about if we are attracting a logistics uh, type of tenant to a space or an owner-occupied business, 
we're talking about major modes of transit, right, and uh, and transportation. And we're looking at where the highways are, where the turnpikes are. There are parts in Miami where, you know, the infrastructure is not as great. The roads are not as great as others. You know, Opalaca has suffered, unfortunately, from some flooding in, in a lot of times. So when you have, when you're in the middle of rainy season, you have to take that into account. When you have 16 wheelers that have to tra transverse those kind of things, I infrastructure is at the heart of all of the qualities that we ascribe to locations depending on the asset class. So those things are uh, extremely important. I thought it was very interesting. They gave an example to, of what you're saying about reimagining the way that we're going to fix the uh, infrastructure uh, that is, you know, that needs attention all throughout our country. And one of them is, for example, do you spend $5 billion to upgrade one regional power plant, or do you spend five billion to build 20 smaller scale decentralized power plants? I wanna add one little thing about this that I saw one time early in my career, I went to a presentation about the future of cities and the presenter had written a book and I, I'm sorry, I just don't recall it, but what I do recall is the presentation. And what he was saying was that when Eisenhower built the highways, right, it shortened the time that it took for his family to visit his grandmother that was a state of way by about two and a half hours. So it was a significant improvement in the quality of life and the connectivity of people. However, in his town, they also paved the road. There was a dirt road <laughs> that went from his house to the main street. And that, the paving of that road only saved them about two and a half minutes, right? But what he says that the lasting cost of fixing that road over again and repaving that road over again was not sustainable. It was part of the same the same pool of money that did that, but the value compared to the cost for future generations is much higher. So this is an issue that it's gonna be important. And like I said, the reason why these issues, we look at five, 10 years on the lines because these are not things that are gonna get A, resolved right away, but the solutions that we're going to find for them are solutions that need to be for the next 25, 50, 75 years. And what I loved about it is the forward thinking aspect of it. And this this particular one with the infrastructure and his um, and their theory about, you know, using the monies for new infrastructure reminded me of something that I saw in 60 Minutes recently, which was about the governor from Wyoming and how it's the largest coal producing state, but he's actually extremely innovative. He's got a zero percent emissions by I can't remember what date, which is very aggressive, especially for somebody from the top coal producing state. But he's also doing everything with wind farming and solar panels and everything else. So again, I thought my, I thought this topic was very timely. So the next one is the price is wrong. Do markets need a pricing reset for values to normalize? I think some of the conversations that are presented in number nine are some of the same conversations that we have discussed, not only in this podcast, but really the marketplace has had these discussions for quite some time. When you're in real estate, one of the wonderful things about it is that you could be at a cocktail party, you could be at a family function, and um, you know, you could be having cafecito in the Ventanita at Versailles and the question comes up uh, you know how's the market right there's all these conversations and and part of the conversation is that people feel that when you have inflationary forces when you have interest rates go up that inevitably there's going to be a cooling down of prices 
but we're not seeing that in our marketplace. And a big part of it, and they mentioned it, is the fact that you still have the supply and demand forces that are trumping some of these other issues. This idea of prices readjusting and, and normalizing, what I took the most out of the presentation is that it is very hyper-local to the marketplace. And then some markets, you're gonna see some drop, right? And in some other markets, you're just going to see the stabilization of those prices as they are, and maybe even an increase, just based on the supply and demand forces. Well, and I think that another point that they made is the disconnect between the seller and the buyer, where the buyer is saying, hey, you know, Prices have to come down because capital is so expensive, construction so expensive. But the seller is saying, okay, but I bought this at a good price and I can hold on to it. I don't need to sell. So there's a disconnect between yeah. the value a seller's putting on it and the right. value a buyer's putting on it. And just because of the different expectations of each of the parties, there's a gap that right. is more difficult to bridge right yeah. now. And, and, and their position is that the sellers are gonna have to be the first ones to blink. However, at the same time, they recognize that rent growth in some sectors has, you know, especially in industrial multifamily, are offsetting the higher interest rates. So again, the idea that you're gonna experience a significant loss in value, um, it's not really realistic in those markets as it is, you know, the case in our market. I mean, obviously one of the areas, and we'll touch upon it in another one, uh, another one of the top 10 lists, but one of the areas that throughout the nation has experienced significant drop in value is office, which they consider has seen a drop of 20 to 30%. We have not seen that in our marketplace uh, along that asset class. And, you know, that has to do more with the economic realities of the South Florida market. Correct. Yeah. Next, number eight. I feel like there should be a drum roll or something after all of these. There we go. Alexa, where's my stuff? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Luckily, we don't have Alexa yeah, in here or it would that. be talking to us. <laughs> um, supply chain logistics and U.S. onshoring. Mm-hmm. I loved this one because yeah. we've been hearing this from Casey Conway for, yeah. I don't know, at least six or seven years, even pre-COVID. pre-COVID. And um, the quote is, uh, a decade ago, about 60 to 65 percent of all containerized goods were flowing through the West Coast ports of L.A. and Long Beach, with 30 to 35 percent coming from the East and Gulf Coast ports. Now that flow of goods has flipped the other way around with 65 percent of containers coming through the East Coast and Gulf Coast ports. The East and Gulf Coast ports can move containerized goods through their ports inland and reach 70 percent of the country's population at twice the speed that West Coast ports can and at half the cost. To me, that's game changer. And talk about real estate implications and everything else. You know, I (laughs) this is just amazing because I'm looking at my notes and and exactly what you wrote is exactly what I highlighted. And I marked off. I mean, exactly (laughs) word by word to the last word that you that you mentioned. And the other thing you mentioned, which I thought was that when I read this, I thought, did Casey Conway write this? Uh, no, you know this one because one. Yeah. no no i'm telling you he's he this is right up his alley including
including this idea of what they call the golden triangle, which is really the reshifting of logistics, the way that we look at it in this country. The golden triangle is between the Great Lakes, Texas, and the Mid-Atlantic. And they, they speak about how much railway, you know, uh, class one, a railway goes through it and why logistics is really, it just makes so much sense to move into that. I thought that that was really a really interesting component for those of us that are not in the logistics business. This is another way to look at it. And, and they mentioned that mapping the FedEx, Amazon, and Walmart e-commerce fulfillment locations in the country shows a heavy concentration of locations from the East Coast into the Mississippi Valley area with very little on the West Coast. So again, mm -hmm. you're seeing that completely shift. And look how many Amazon and FedEx and Walmart warehouses have been either purchased or built. I'm thinking of right. Port St. Lucie, you know, I mean, yeah. they they just had really big ones um, completed up there. So Absolutely. we're definitely seeing it. And from a real estate standpoint, mm -hmm. big changer, um, you know, what and what does that mean? If, if that shift stays, what does that mean for absorption rates of industrial over on the West Coast and then some of the other previously? You know, the, yeah. the ones that used to handle the 60 to 65 percent. What does that mean? I know the West Coast still has a ton of demand for theirs, you know, warehouses, obviously. Maybe it just means no new construction. Maybe it means repurposing of older ones when they build the newer ones. But the the real estate implications on this one specifically really excited me. And maybe yeah. it's just because of Casey Conway's insights. Right. But exactly. so issue number yeah. five. Where Vision have all five. the oh, workers gone? But wait, you're skipping seven? I did. Six? <laughs> oh, yeah, I did. I Sorry, I well, went from Alexa. I went from down. Alexa. Yeah. So seven, real estate Armageddon. I just wanted to sing yeah. that song. Real estate <laughs> Armageddon. Economy, interest rates, and inflation. In order to avoid just the repetition of what everybody talks about, which is interest rates, inflation, etc., one thing I do want to comment here is that when I look at the top 10 issues, I often look at the top 10 issues from the year prior, and because I want to see whether an issue has remained at the top of the list or it has moved down. So inflation and interest rate was the number one top 10 issue in 2020. 2022-2023 list. Now it has moved down to number seven. So even though the title of it, Real Estate Armageddon, is you know very eye-catching and very concerning, you know as you read through it, it is about the uncertainty of how those forces are really uh, going to affect things. And I think the biggest concern is the amount of loans that are maturing, commercial loans that are maturing, and CMBS loans that are maturing in 2025. All of that can be relieved, right, uh, as we're starting to see the rates go down and to see where the rates really end up by the end of 2024. I just wanted to mention that just because the name is, a, is, is shocking. The next one, number six, ma'am. Population shock, migration, impact on real estate. So yeah. this is interesting too. It was already happening a little bit and it has a lot to do with demographics and yeah. how our population is aging with millennials getting married and starting families you know, at an older yeah. age than boomers did and Gen Zers yeah. also young and coming up behind. Yeah. But what was interesting to me here is that it says US is becoming less CBD centric sorry, central business district centric and more suburban tertiary mar market centric. Mm -hmm. And I found that interesting because this seems to be just another real estate cycle, this one more residential, but 
the move to the suburbs was really started with William Levitt in Levittown in New York in 1946. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, he was building affordable housing outside of New York. So after the war, we, you know, World War II, we saw move to the suburbs. And then, you know, you're raising kids and everything else. And then the boomers started to move back. And as downtowns got more vibrant and they did more to entice people to come and stay down in their downtowns besides just going into the office, then COVID hit and it was the complete opposite shift. And now with, you know, work from home being an issue, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, too, with work from home being a reality with the younger generations, it's flipped it again, because before, you know, I'm I'm going to be totally open and transparent. I'm a boomer. (laughs) But boomers tended to be very loyal to their jobs. They moved because of a job. The younger generations are not doing that. The younger generations are figuring out where they want to live and then finding work. And I keep thinking of Emily Lyne saying, I don't know, I just want to move to California. I'll figure it out when I get there. Or I want to move to Chicago and I'll figure it out when I get there. So I think that that's the migration impact. And then also because of number eight, which we talked about the supply chain shifting, I think that also, you know, highlights some of it because that's where the work is and it's more affordable, you know, uh, more affordable living in the areas where the supply chains are moving yeah. to than where they're coming from, which is the West Coast and the North. I did I did gravitate to the same idea, this idea that people uh, would get a job first and then decide where to live. And, and now it has been reversed uh, where they're choosing where to live and then finding a job. And as a result of that, when we're talking about migration, we're not only talking about migration of people, but we're talking about migration of businesses that are relocating to where the workforce wants to live, you know? And when you look at the list of the states that are attracting the most growth, and and one of this is there's actually something called a U-Haul Growth Index, which has to do with one-way trips of U-Haul of people that are moving. You can also do the same thing when you're looking at driver license data, but the top three states are Texas, Florida, and, and South South Carolina. Um, all right. So now we are down to uh, we're we're halfway there, guys. Number five. Where have all the workers gone? The labor shortage. Yeah. You know, I I, I think that the biggest information here that that has been provided is so for example as of august there were approximately 1.8 available jobs for every unemployed person unemployment rate has remained low and we are looking at uh i I found this interesting at its peak 62 percent of all office workers were working remotely which introduced new virtual ways of working and that has flipped back Mm -hmm. to uh being uh, almost 60 percent of all work is at the office And look, one of the things that I found interesting is that when we're looking at this labor shortage strain, it moved up from last year. Last year, that was issue number six. Now it's issue number five, and it's going to come up again in this list. And so I thought that to a degree, a lot of the question marks about office and about labor, we would have a little bit more clarity, but it doesn't seem to be the case. No, and I think during COVID, a lot of people decided to quit their 
their jobs, change their jobs, start new businesses, um, become influencers, travel more. And, and I think that's part of it. And then again, boomers are retiring. We're mm-hmm. getting to the peak, I think, of the retirement yeah. age of boomers. So that's taking a big group of workers that were a little bit more loyal to the traditional office or work setting than the younger generation is, which is they're much more willing and able to change jobs frequently, to travel, to say, oh, I'm going to do this remotely or I'm going to go move over there and figure it out. So um, I do think this is going to continue to be an issue. Um, But then comes number four, which might solve some of this issue, which is AI and how intelligent is it, the convergence of real estate and AI? Yeah, definitely. It is mentioned in number five as well, which is the uh, question mark of what what is the role of AI in solving some of these labor shortage problems, which is why you're seeing a lot of labor groups throughout the country renegotiating and having, you know, a heart to heart with their the industry as to what is the place of labor when you have the, you know, promulgating of, of AI and its, its growth that is so fast. I, I think I read yesterday that the employees of Microsoft have made a deal with Microsoft that that is really related to where what's going to be our place as AI is growing. And, you know, it seems to be that what Microsoft's approach has been to give their employees a seat at the table as to the growth of AI within their infrastructure and within their company. I know that we just went through a writers and actors uh, guild uh, strike mm-hmm. that was all dependent upon the question of AI and, you know, who owns the likeness and and all these other factors. So definitely, I I think that it is inevitable that we need to embrace new ways of thinking. Um, The question mark is how much is going to be under our control and how much control we're going to give up for that. My favorite quote here was, however, the big innovations in commercial real estate will come not from chat GPT, but from the large number of prop tech startups that are reimagining the idea of data collection. So I thought that you know, other than be afraid of it or think how it's going to take our jobs or whatever, you think of the challenges and the opportunity that having AI creates. And I loved the idea of prop tech. It's something that you and I explore a lot um, with the REACH program and, you know, constantly looking at what's out there in the commercial prop tech market. Yeah. Number three, I feel like I should be clicking my red shoes. There's no place like home, the global housing shortage. Yeah. Yeah, this is, again, a topic that is uh, not going to leave us for a very, very long time. What I found interesting is they mentioned that the National Apartment Association and the National Multifamily Housing Council, they both estimate that the U.S. needs to build about 4.3 million more apartments by 2035 to meet the demand of rental housing, just to meet it. And just rental housing. And just rental housing, correct. And and what's interesting is they say it's not really as daunting as it sounds to add on average 309 units per year. However, what seems to happen is that because we have inflationary forces, higher costs, tighter lending, uh, then there is a, a stop. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that creates a barrier to entry. And then all of a sudden, even those that have the plans to build have to slow down or have to stop their plans and 
reconfigure and, and find another approach. And so there doesn't seem to be a like a locomotive gaining momentum in the housing building uh, sector, even in rental housing, in order for us to see the ability for us to build that many units through 20, uh, 2035. And again, if all you're doing is meeting demand, that's not enough for you to really, for that to affect price, right? Correct. You would have to exceed Correct. that demand in order for you to start to see. So again, that's definitely a hurdle that uh, that has to be overcome in order to address, um, you know, the affordability of housing. And I think this current cycle, even though it's just been a couple of years that, you know, we hit the higher prices and everything, mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to exacerbate it because I don't see, yeah. you know, the new stuff that's in the pipeline is going to come on. It's going to be rapidly absorbed, but then we're going to go into a lull where very little is being built again until the financial conditions and the lending and everything looses up and the the price of at least something comes down. If it's not the land, which we don't see that happening, but the cost of construction coming down or new technologies to make construction streamlined or faster or some regulatory change, I think that that number is going to go up before the next cycle starts. I know we've thrown a lot of numbers, but there was one there that I thought was really interesting, and that has to do with currently those properties that are on the market as of the date of this publication, uh, 33% of those properties were brand new properties. If you look between 2000 and 2019, that number was significantly lower, was only 12.7%, which is that we're not seeing a lot of sellers come into the marketplace at the rate that they should be. I don't know what the number is now, but I think the average time that a home uh, seller was at home is on average five to seven years. That number has increased dramatically, uh, almost to the double digits, if not has exceeded it. So therefore, you know, now you have people holding on to their property longer. There's less inventory that comes into the market place. And one thing that they really didn't address here, which I found interesting that wasn't really, you know, a a focal point is the amount of private equity firms that are buying single family homes in bulk. So some of the new construction never even sees the light of day. Right. You know, right. And number two, we're almost there. Hang Mm -hmm. in there, people. Do I have to go to the office? Occupiers, Mm -hmm. obsolescence and devaluation. Yeah. Yeah, this is, again, I found it very interesting that this is something that continues to go up. I mean, this was number three in the list last year under hybrid work, and now, you know, it's number two on the list. And I think a lot has to do with the realities of, you know, the the new norm of work. One thing that I did find interesting is this idea of employers recognize that they need to pull people back to the office, which is creating a bigger battle cry for offices to be destination worthy. And I I really like that. Uh, I I think that that's absolutely spot on. I think that more than ever, employers have to be very conscientious to curate the spaces that they are providing for their employees. Well, and you talk about that all the time. You talk about not only the amenities of the building, but the amenities of a neighborhood. So what brings them in? And in this In this um, paper that they did, they also discussed the job of property managers, that if you manage an office building and you know that your largest um, tenant has people coming in Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, then then you better make sure that there's something fun to bring them in or keep them there. So holiday bazaars, food trucks, something um, to make them not only want to come in that day, but maybe come in more frequently or stay longer. And, And to me, 
the importance of that has to do with the downtowns. I mean, if your whole downtown is really predicated on the office workers and then the transition from office workers to the residents who live down there, all of your retail space really is dependent on that. I mean, if you don't have any office workers, then and unless the people are all working from home and still frequenting the restaurants and the shops that they normally would, what happens to their income? Can they afford those rents? Um, and then you go into a cycle again where, again, then the CBDs are going to need to be doing something to make people want to come and stay downtown if it's not coming to the office. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one thing that we've always discussed about the global pandemic is that it accelerated trends that were already there. As far back as I remember, there has been conversation about the future of work before we ever hit COVID. And, you know, when you look at the success of a book like the four-day work week, there were books about rethinking work and about the ideas of how to rethink the office setup, how to re rethink the way the meetings are carried out. You know, I think that there was always this push to increase productivity and increase employee retention that was already there and it was kind of you know in the background and then this acceleration like I don't think this issue I think if we look at 2024 2025 top 10 issues this is going to be right Absolutely. at the top of the list agreed it's a it's a change in lifestyle and sure. priorities um, yeah. and now number one Da, na, na, na. what's the world coming to political unrest and global economic health and of course when this was released um, the first week of October Venezuela hadn't threatened the takeover of <laughs> right yeah Guyana so mm -hmm. this is an issue that again rose in the ranks you know last year geopolitical risk was number two right below inflation and interest rates and now it is at the top of the list and you might say, well, why is, you know, why is that at the top of the list? Well, I think that there's nothing that affects a marketplace more than uncertainty. And there are so many things that are outside of our control with what's happening all the way on the other side of the world. And to your point, very close to us. And so, you know, I think that the level of uncertainty that that creates is very, very concerning. And, you know, do we see the factors because, you know, I'm putting myself in, in the shoes of the counselors of real estate when they're sitting down and they're looking at issues 5, 10, 15 years down the line. Line, I think what they're saying by this list is that this is not an issue that has a single, uh, you know, uh, approach and solution that is going to make it happen. However, I do have to say that they make a mention right at the end of, of this issue of ge geopolitical risk, which I thought was very interesting because it talked about the, the fundamentals as a real estate uh, investor, as a real estate broker, et cetera, which is that market participants will need to be much more micro-focused because market conditions, as well as other factors such as regulatory and tax landscape, vary from market to market. Depending on where you sit in this market, the next year could be extraordinarily difficult or you could have tremendous opportunity. And this is something that you and I always harp on when we're speaking to other uh, agents. You have to be the hyper-local expert in your marketplace. And sometimes you have to be aware of how these international forces are affecting the overall um, economy, right? But ultimately, you have to be the expert in your hyper-local market. And you have to understand that the dynamic conditions that are present in your marketplace may be very different than everywhere else. Correct. And to your point, 
you know, a lot of these things we can't control, right? Mm -hmm. So if you focus on what you can control, you can still move forward. Um, you're still going to invest. Um, but these issues, because they are yeah. so wide-reaching, deserves at least a look at or consideration right. when you when you are investing, because these obviously don't even take into account black swan events such as covid Absolutely. or anything like Correct. that and yeah again it's just hedging to your point the hyper local knowledge invest in what you know take calculated yeah. risks and um, although I, I i often wonder we were a hundred years in between global pandemics right uh that doesn't mean that we're, it's going to take another hundred years to right. see it right but the question is, you know, just like, you know, societies get used to change uh, kind of very rapidly is how much of an effect, will another black swan event have the same effect when it doesn't come every hundred years? <laughs> you know, right. right? If, right. It, if it happens, if, if it happens more often, is that going to have a different psychological effect on the population than than what we experienced because it was so out of the norm? Right. right. And many of us not being alive the last time that it happened. Right. I do want to make a comment as I've been making a comment about this you know kind of like the moving metrics and so i want to i want to just showcase a couple of things because in some ways i think the order of these things and the omission of some of the issues that were present last year say a lot about you know what the counselors of real estate are thinking are top issues and what are some of the things that have kind of relegated to the background so i wanted to just showcase this to 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 those of you that are listening as i mentioned geopolitical risk went right to the top from two to one the hyper work question went from three to two. But I found interesting that the supply chain disruption was number four on the list last year, and now it's number eight on the list, right? And the labor shortage strains did, you know, did move up, and the housing imbalance, which is the way that they presented last year, uh, which has to do with the global housing shortage, that, that shot up from seventh to three. So again, the importance of those things. But I did find something interesting. There was one one of the things on the list last year was regulatory uncertainty, and and that had to do with some municipalities getting in in involved with the use of of, of real property, you know, rent control measures, uh, you know, things things of that nature. Um, there were also ESG requirements forcing change was number tenth on the list, but it was still had to do with regulations. I think to a degree we're starting to find a level ground in which companies and part market participants are figuring out how to approach ESG. You know, I think that the newness of what it was and, you know, starting to create some paradigms, right, as to how you handle ESG is, uh, is going to be important. Those are, you know, um, economic, social, and governance. Environmental. I'm sorry, social. environmental, social, and governance. Um, yeah, well, you, you got to put economy there somewhere. It's going to be important. <laughs> and then the other one was cybersecurity interruptions, which, you know, you could say that maybe that, you know, I don't know if that moved up in the, in, in what's the world coming to in the idea of volatility and uncertainty and economic risk, but, but that wasn't on the list. It was one about energy was the other one that was left out, um, you know, from last year to this year. So, you know, again, I, I what I like about these is that now when we look at the list next year, we'll start to see whether we see a trend, you know, and, and how new ideas are getting absorbed into concerns for the future. 
Very good. Do yeah. you have your fun fact? I do have, uh, I would say that my fact may not be fun, but it is definitely out of the norm. But would you like to go first? No? Sure. Yes. So we, we just had Art Basel earlier this month, and uh -huh. it has absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with anything that we're going to foresee into 2024. But the highest reported sale price by far for Art Basel, um, and it sold on the first day, was $20 million for Philip Guston's Painter at Night, which mm. was done in 1979. And is it is it just a canvas in all in black because the painter was a knight and I'm gonna be totally honest, I didn't Google it, but it very well could be because I remember going once and seeing yeah. a canvas that was painted white and I think it was five hundred thousand dollars and I'm like, Are you kidding me? I'm gonna do one in orange and only charge At least there wasn't like an avocado pit uh, stuck to a wall. And just art week itself without including the the sale of art generates an estimated five hundred million dollars in economic impact for uh, Miami-Dade yeah. County and Broward. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering because they say it is the, the second largest art fair in the world. And, uh, you know, I wonder if it's if it's getting to be the number one. Yeah, I don't know. But it, it's interesting because everybody was nervous based on the economy yeah. and politics and everything else. Yeah. Everybody used the word subdued. It was like the word of yeah. the week for yeah. Art Week this year was subdued. But I don't know, 20 million doesn't sound too I don't know, but if anybody locally was here and they got caught in any of that R Basel traffic, I don't yes. think that anybody felt that it was subdued. <laughs> My, mine is an interesting dynamic because I, I've often quoted Elian Eisenberg, the uh, bowtie economist. You know, this was really something that, that was very interesting, and he called it friend figures. And so he says, while the number of close friends we have averages three, and the number of people we call friends is about 150, which is known as the Dunbar number, the number of people we know, including persons we see or communicate with as infrequently as every other year, averages 611, with a median of 472. 1.5% of the population know as few as 100 to 149 people, 5% know over 1,500 people. And the, the reason why I brought that up as a stat is that I found it interesting as we're talking about these top 10 issues is, I mean, we live in a beautiful and big, big world. And, you know, if you if you really think about it, we only connect with a very small percentage of that world. And yet we develop a worldview based on that limited connection, which is why we were, we're big advocates of travel. And I, I, I just thought that that was really interesting how... I mean, my goodness, you're, you know, you're talking about 1.5% of the population know just 100, 149 people. And that's, that's the world. That's their world. And that's mm -hmm. how they, how they define the world is based on those interactions. So it's uh, food for thought, guys, food for thought. All righty. We're coming up on our last episode, right? right? Next episode is our last episode. Mm -hmm. so of the year. Of the year. Of the year. Oh, All sorry. Right. <laughs> we're, not, we're not closing shop. I thought this right. was just a one-year gig. Corinna is like. Whoa. I, thought this I was didn't know I was going to do gig. that work just for one year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So our last episode of the year of 2023, and we want your suggestions and recommendations, and there's going to be a giveaway. That's right. That's right. We're looking so forward to it. Stay tuned. We'll make sure that we put it out there so that uh, we can, uh, you know, interact with you. And, you know, once again, thank you for taking the time to listen. 
We always love it when we get feedback, and we would uh, definitely love your feedback um, as you come across this um, humble uh, podcast that uh, we created this year, and we've had an incredible amount of fun doing it. So thank you guys for pulling up a chair, and until next time. Have a wonderful holiday season. That's right. Goodbye.